Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to CSIS. Um, my name is Connor Savoy, and I'm a non-resident senior associate uh, here with the Project on Prosperity and Development. Um, in my day job, I'm the executive director of the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network. Um, so I'm very pleased to be joined today uh, by David Roll, who is the author of George Marshall, Defender of the Republic, a new biography of George C. Marshall right. that just came out. Um, David is a senior counsel at Steptoe and Johnson and a former partner there. Uh, but more importantly for this discussion, he's also written biographies of Harry Hopkins, one of FDR's closest advisors, and Lewis Johnson, who went on to serve as the second Secretary of Defense. Um, welcome, David. Thank you. Very pleased to have you here today. Um, so George Marshall probably doesn't need any introduction, but maybe if you want to briefly uh, intro him for the audience. Could do that. Yeah. Um, so George Catlett Marshall, uh, remembered if at all by most people today as the man with a plan, the Marshall Plan, of course. Uh, and I like to say he's not to be confused with George Preston Marshall, former owner of the Washington Redskins. Uh, uh, during his Bitterly contested divorce, Preston Marshall's wife complained to the judge, I married a man without a plan. <laughs> when, George, when George C. Marshall, uh, as Secretary of State, was spearheading the, uh, what was called the, his, the Historic European Recovery Program, later known as the Marshall Plan, through Congress, Clark Clifford's uh, advisor recommended that the plan be called the Truman Plan. And at the time, Truman's approval numbers were in the tank. If you can believe it, they, 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 were, wor they were worse than Trump's at, 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 at his lowest. And Truman responded, if I send that plan up to the Hill with my name on it, he said, it will quiver a couple of times, go belly up, and die. <laughs> Even the worst Republican, he said, would vote for the plan, Marshall's name were attached to it. And Truman was dead right. By the middle of the, tw uh, the 20th century, General Marshall was the most respected public figure in America. And he had risen to prominence as early as 1918, during the Great War, uh, when he, uh, he uh, planned and he executed brilliant nighttime movement of 600,000 American troops, putting them in place to fight and win the, uh, uh, the decisive battle, Meuse-Argonne, that ended the First World War. General Pershing was in charge of all the American troops in France at the time, was so impressed with Marshall's performance that he made him his closest personal aide after the war, his own chief of staff. And of course, during the Second World War, Marshall was uh, chief of staff of the entire United States Army. And he organized from scratch. Uh, and he supplied and he trained an army of more than 8.3 million men and women. And he was the dominant voice in matters of allied grand strategy, deployment of troops across the globe. And right after the war, literally after he uh, uh, the day after he retired, he took out an assignment to go to China. He spent a year in China trying and failing to uh, uh, form a coalition government between the Chinese communists and uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, nationalists. Uh, lots of luck with that. Right after that, uh, Secretary of State, 47 and 48, uh, pushed through the Marshall Plan, laid the groundwork for NATO, oversaw the Berlin airlift, uh, had the famous showdown with Truman in the Oval Office over the recognition of uh, of, it, of the new state of Israel. A year as president of the American Red Cross. And then uh, Truman called upon Marshall one more time right after the outbreak of the Korean War. He made him Secretary of Defense. And in that uh, job, he helped uh, rebuild the American armed forces that had been depleted following the Second World War. And he oversaw one of the things I learned was most surprised at. Uh, in my research, he oversaw the relief with considerable deference, uh, with considerable deference, reluctantly, 
oversaw the relief of General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, and so the sheer sweep of Marshall's, and that, oh, he, accept, he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in 53. So the, sh the sheer sweep of his career, 50-year career under 10 presidents, soldier and statesman, uh, is breathtaking. So that's quick summary. Yeah. So I guess that raises yeah. a question of why the need for a new biography of George Marshall now? What, what, what yeah. spurred you to write this book? And in the course of writing, what did you discover new that yeah. maybe some of his past biographers like Forrest Pogue hadn't, didn't come up with or turn over? Well, Harry Hopkins introduced me uh, in, a, in a pretty significant way to Marshall because they became uh, friends. And Marshall, because he did not want to get too close to President Roosevelt, uh, used Hopkins uh, as his window, you know, his window into what Robert Sherwood called uh, uh, Roosevelt's heavily forested interior. Uh, so that was one. And then the first book, uh, the Johnson book, uh, also introduced me to Marshall because Johnson was Assistant Secretary of War and helped, helped uh, Marshall become Chief of Staff of the Army. Uh, but then I started digging into it and I found that um, since the last biography, the decent biography of, uh, of Marshall was written, there had been an avalanche of correspondence uh, donated to the Marshall Library in Lexington, Virginia. Um, and I also uh, became friends with and close to uh, <clears throat> the son of Marshall's stepson, uh, another lawyer, used to be in Washington, now up in the uh, Northwest uh, Massachusetts, and uh, spent some time with him, and he had a, the proverbial things that all authors want to find. He had a box of documents and correspondence that was stored beneath uh, a bench in his farmhouse in Northwest Massachusetts uh, that became revelatory inf uh, uh, facts and information that I used in my book. Um, so I also had discovered that there had been some recent books, three of them, written that I felt unfairly tarnished uh, Marshall's uh, legacy, his reputation. Uh, one by a fellow named O'Brien, <coughs> uh, a British author, uh, who wrote a book entitled The Second Most Important Man in the World. The life of General, uh, the life of Admiral Leahy, and basically this book was uh, devoted to trying to prove that Admiral Leahy was much more significant uh, figure in terms of overall strategy in the Second World War than Marshall. <laughs> so it, it presented a challenge, and I, I can't believe that Admiral Leahy was the second most important person in the world. But that was the title <laughs> of the book. That was the thesis. And then uh, a recent biography by, the, uh, by Unger and Hershon that, that I felt was unfairly uh, negative. Um, but I wanted to challenge, I wanted to, to really research and you know, test that, those propositions. And then the Nigel Hamilton trilogy, uh, which of World War II also presented some challenges in, <clears throat> in regard to the way he portrayed uh, Marshall's performance. So what's new? Uh, the correspondence, what the, the, the themes, if there are themes in my book, they are Marshall's inner life, his interior, and Marshall's character. Those are sort of the overall arching, the overarching uh, themes. But what's, what's new is uh, his second wife, Catherine, uh, and how important she was to him and what her background was. Uh, in terms of uh, World War II historians, the new thing in, the, in my book is what I call the Cherbourg or Contented Peninsula alternative that Marshall pushed for, but he was forced to push for it uh, by Roosevelt and Churchill uh, in 42 as an alternative to the invasion of North Africa uh, because Marshall thought it was a big mistake to go into North Africa that what they really should have done is continue to build up in England and invade France in 43 uh, instead of North Africa in 42. 
and as a result of going to North Africa, of course, the invasion of France was delayed another year. So I spent a lot of time at the British North, uh, National Archives researching that plan and how Marshall and Eisenhower uh, and uh, Truscott and, and the Americans dealt with the British in, de in developing that plan, which the British War Cabinet turned down. But a lot of the British war planners were in favor of the, what we call the Cherbourg Alternative. So that's a big, a big part of a new part of my book, new materials that came out of the British archives. The whole you know, issue of racism with Marshall, anti-Semitism in terms of whether, whether he was anti-Semitic in opposing the, uh, the uh, recognition of Israel in 1948, uh, new discussions. Uh, in that regard. The Alibi Club, I don't know whether any, you all live in Washington, I assume, <laughs> but there's a, a club that still exists at 1806 I Street. Uh, it's called the Alibi Club, formed in the 1880s. It's a shabby townhouse. You'd not, you wouldn't know it, if you, you wouldn't recognize it if you drove by. It's surrounded by glass walled built, uh, uh, easily miss it. You can easily miss it. It's, Have you? you I've seen uh, it, yeah. Well, I've been in there, and Marshall was a, a special member during World War II and held many of his uh, top secret meetings with uh, generals and <clears throat> congressmen and so forth. But there was an evening in January uh, 1944, on the eve of, uh, of Operation Overlord, when he insisted that Eisenhower come back to the United States. And on a January night, uh, Marshall, as sort of the solicitous father figure, uh, introduced Eisenhower at the Alibi Club to all of the congressional leaders, the military affairs committees, including the Speaker of the House. Uh, and it's a, an evocative sort of just, you know, classic. Uh, he brought him back because he wanted uh, Eisenhower to, to be introduced as Ike uh, to official Washington on the theory that this whole, this whole invasion could fail uh, and he wanted he wanted uh, at least the, the, these people to get to know him as they, as they did they spent an evening with him that's if you got to know him they they were all calling him Ike by the end of the evening so that's that's another kind of new sort of angle to uh, he also did the same thing with General Mark Clark in April so there's other stuff there. yeah of course so, you know, um, yeah. Earlier, you referenced his role in planning this troop movement during World War One of moving 600,000 yeah. American troops to the Meuse-Argonne. Can you describe some of this, these formative experiences like that, his earlier career in the Philippines, and yeah. you know how did this experience as a staff officer and not as a combat officer in World War One shape his his future career? So formative, you know, one formative thing is when he was still at VMI. Virginia Military Institute senior year. In the spring, <coughs> he wanted to get a he wanted to get an army commission. And this was after the Spanish American War, 1901, uh, and the the army was being cut back. It was tough to get commissions. So, uh, just as an example of his initiative, uh, he he got a, t a train ticket to Washington, and he had a letter that introduced him to. Uh, one of the, I think it was the attorney general, his father had a relationship with the attorney, but his purpose in going to Washington was try to lobby whoever he could lobby uh, for a commission. Uh, and he had a couple of contacts, but one day he just, uh, he, he waited in line at the White House. Uh, and uh, as people went up to the second floor to, to meet with the president, um, and he got in line and uh, <clears throat> ended up uh, having a conversation with President McKinley. Uh, and told him that he wanted an army commission, uh, which it's he one eventually way of doing got. <laughs> I, I could not prove that it came as a result of McKinley, but he had he had the initiative to actually get in the White House and meet McKinley when he was when, at the time he was only 20 years old. He was 16 when he entered VMI, so he was young when he graduated. Uh, the key experience uh, that I think. Uh, uh, brought him to the fore in the, U in the old U.S. regular army was in 1914, was in the Philippines. And for various reasons, as a first lieutenant, he became, 
he was he ended up being in charge because the general was fired and the other people were, had to leave. But he ended up in charge of 5,000 troops who were doing a mock battle, invading invading the Philippines uh, and trying to capture Manila against a, an opposing force. So he, he commanded the 5,000 troops of the white force and did the strategic uh, made the strategic moves and had the mock battles and captured Manila and there were it, it, his performance as a first lieutenant was noted by among others Hap Arnold who at that time was also a first lieutenant and, he, and people that saw him perform and how he how he strategized and commanded 5,000 troops in an amphibious landing uh, uh, similar to you know what would happen you know, 40 years later, uh, you know, reverberated throughout the uh, the regular army um, as as he was regarded as a genius. And Hap Arnold wrote his wife at that time said, "I just met the first. Uh, uh, I just met a man who will be uh, chief of staff of the U.S. Army one day." <laughs> of course, that happened. Then there was a famous incident in 1917. Marshall was. Uh, then a major uh, with the first division, the big red one. He was the second one off the boat with the first division uh, in 1917 in France. Uh, and they were training uh, in France. Pershing was under enormous pressure to get the first division into the, the battle. The British and the French wanted to just put these guys into the trenches right away. Pershing wanted to hold the first division together. So they were having these maneuvers. And for one reason or another, the general in charge of the 1st Division wasn't there, and Marshall was with Pershing. And Pershing started criticizing uh, the, the, uh, you know, the performance of the, uh, in this mock battle. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt's son was in this particular move, uh, maneuver. Um, and he started uh, criticizing the general who showed up late. And Marshall stepped out and said, uh, General Pershing, uh, I have something to say. I have been here the longest, and I know what the situation is. And basically then, Marshall just came out with a fuselage of facts, uh, criticizing General Pershing's headquarters for screwing up some of the orders, not getting the equipment they needed, uh, changing the terminology so that there was confusion, a whole lot of things like that. Pershing said, listen. And they said, well, I'll look into it. And Marshall then actually grabbed him by the shoulder and said, no, uh, you don't have to look into it. I've just told you the situation, the fact. <laughs> and you know, Pershing got away. And uh, everybody, all of his friends, Marshall's friends said, you're done. <laughs> uh, but Pershing appreciated constructive criticism. And they actually, he then started relying on Marshall uh, and, and, and uh, having you know, conferences with him, asking him his opinions about things. Mm. And actually, you know, it was a great, uh, in one way, an advantage of Marshall. But as a result of that, Marshall ended up being pulled into the general headquarters uh, and deprived of a, uh, a command of troops. He did plan the first, the first major offensive by the 1st Division. He planned and executed it. He was under fire, but he wasn't leading troops. He was under artillery fire at night when he was reconnoitering personally the battlefield. And that was the first offensive uh, operation uh, by, the, uh, by the Americans uh, as a unit. It was tw two regiments. So, and then, of course, he planned the, the Meuse-Argonne uh, battle. So those, those experiences shot him up into the, uh, you know, into the uh, strategic uh, planning uh, ranks uh, high up in the U.S. Army and away from the, uh, the command. He didn't go over, he did not go over the top with uh, leading troops in World War I. And he never did. Uh, and we can talk about what happened in Operation Overlord later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, to, to skip the skip ahead a little bit, um, Marshall becomes the Army Chief of Staff on September first, nineteen thirty-nine, the same day that Germany invades Poland. Um, 
at the time, the U.S. was woefully unprepared right. for war. We were something like the 17th or 18th largest <coughs> army in the world. We ranked behind countries like Romania. Yeah. Um, Bulgaria. Romania, Bulgaria. Yeah, exactly. Portugal, Portugal <laughs> even. Yeah, so we, you know, no tanks or few tanks, old tanks, very small. How, how did Marshall approach this task of really going from, in six years, from the, one of the smallest militaries in the world to right. probably the largest military force, most powerful military force in the world by the end of the war. How did he approach this task of building and preparing the army for war? Well, at first, he approached it cautiously. You know, 1939, 40, uh, the isolationists uh, basically uh, controlled and and, and Roosevelt was not about to get uh, ahead of them. He did not want to be regarded as a warmonger. He was facing uh, another election in 1940. Uh, politics, I think, played a part in this. So Marshall had to, he could not get ahead of Roosevelt. He knew that, and Roosevelt was very cautious himself about uh, the uh, about the army. Now, wh what Marshall needed to build the army was the first thing he needed was money from Congress, uh, and then you know he needed uh, he he, ne he needed money, he needed manpower. That was the next first money, then manpower, uh, then war material, and then finally talent. And so the first thing was money and. Believe it or not, when the uh, Germans were overran Europe and defeated France uh, in May of 194, May and June of 1940, Roosevelt was trying to cut the army budget. And there was a famous incident about, I think it was May 13th, 1940, when Marshall was beside himself. Uh, because, you know, not, not only was not getting money, it was, uh, Roosevelt was cutting, was proposing to cut the budget. So he and Morgenthau had this meeting with Roosevelt one time, uh, May 13th. And again, uh, Marshall, Marshall did take the lead, probably for the first time with the president. He stood over him intentionally, the president in a wheelchair. And he said, Mr. President, can I have three minutes? I'm not used to talking to presidents, uh, and I don't know how to talk to a president exactly. Marshall always felt that Roosevelt gave him this position as the best of a bad bargain. He did not know his, his footing was not solid by May of 1940 with the president. But he said, I have to tell you, I have to say something right now. You have got to do something, and you've got to do it right now. And then again, he gave him the facts of what he needed. <clears throat> and you know, Roosevelt at first tried to, he had brushed off Morgenthau already in that same conference, but he listened, he listened to, uh, to Marshall. And the next day, he called Marshall in, and they sat down, and they worked out, and the spigot, the congressional spigot, uh, began to open. Now, manpower, manpower was a, a the Roosevelt would not uh, even whisper about a draft. <clears throat> Because they had no, you know, they, they had to, they had to have a draft. So, Marshall's job was to convince Roosevelt that they actually needed an, a, a big army, that that they weren't that that the British alone were not going to be able to defeat the Germans. And later, when the Soviets got into war, he had to convince them that the Soviets weren't going to be able to do it either. They needed the Americans to have an army, and that there was going to have to be a ground offensive in Europe. That was a big stretch. Big stretch for, uh, for Roosevelt. But it wasn't until Roosevelt brought in the Republicans in the, uh, in, uh, right after the convention in 1940. Roosevelt was a masterstroke, brought in Henry Stimson, a Republican, uh, a, a prominent Republican, had already been Secretary of War under Taft, then Secretary of State under Hoover. Stimson was a very strong person. He brought him in in the summer of 1940. Uh, along with Knox, who was also a Republican for the uh, Navy. Mm -hmm. And so Stimson came in and testified during his confirmation hearing that he was in favor of the draft. Roosevelt's mouth was, you know, kept quiet, everybody. So when, when Stimson was confirmed 
by a, uh, you know, on a by overwhelming bipartisan basis. Stimson then led the way, and Marshall, Marshall laid back until Stimson said, okay, we're going for the draft. So by October of 1940, they got the draft legislation through, and Marshall was instrumental in dealing with Congress. They believed he told the truth, and he did, even if it hurt him. But October, they had to compromise to get the isolationists to uh, provide some support for the draft legislation. They had to compromise. And the deal was, okay, you can, we can draft millions of, uh, millions of Americans, but the draft, but they would, they would only be uh, in the service for 18 months unless, unless Congress, at some point later after October 1940, declared a national emergency, a resolution of a national emergency. So they got the draft started, but it only had 18 months. If, if they didn't have a, a congressional resolution within 18 months, the army would be, melt away. Uh, so they were under, a, you know, a dagger was above them for the first 18 months. And this word, uh, among the draftees, they came up with this slogan, Ohio, over the hill in October, the next October, they were going to, they were all going to, they, th they thought we'd be out of the, we'd be out of the army. Yeah. So they had this uh, big congressional uh, lobbying effort and Marshall led the way on that. And he had meetings with Republican senators. Uh, he lobbied them, uh, meetings at the Army Navy Club and so on. And then uh, of course on the Hill. And so it, when it came time, when the resolution for declaring a national emergency came up in 1941, uh, it passed by one vote, by one vote. Uh, 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 so uh, if, if, they had, if, if, it, if it had been deadlocked or they hadn't gotten a majority, the army would have disappeared. Yeah. Uh, and they would have, they, it, it was, uh, so that was building the army. Equipment, uh, the problem with Marshall faced with, uh, with uh, Roosevelt was that uh, Roosevelt wanted to supply the, the British, uh, and rightfully so. The British were uh, on the line, and they were they were just demanding equi equipment. And, and then when the Soviets got in the war, we had to supply the Soviets. So there was a big uh, tug of war between Marshall wanting to get the, the equipment he needed to train his army, and at the same time. Uh, the demands uh, of the Soviets and the, uh, and, and the British. So, so the final thing is talent. Um, and Marshall, uh, when he was at Fort Benning in the late, late 20s, early 30s, was in charge of the academic program at Fort Benning. And in that, that was the, the infantry school. He trained, he assessed, he evaluated, he trained, uh, he trained I think it was, uh, by the end of it, it was 200, 200 of the people that came through Fort Benning, officers, became generals in the Second World War. So he had a mythical, I don't know whether he actually had a black book, but it was, he had a book in his head of who was good and who wasn't. And Marshall was very good at picking talent. He made some colossal mistakes, but for the most part, he picked the generals who would lead uh, the nation in the next war. So that's sort of a summary yeah. of preparation. You, um, when you were talking about that, you referenced his relationship with FDR, and these were two men who had very different personalities. FDR was very outgoing, very right. informal with mm -hmm. people, and Marshall, of course, has this very formal exterior in, right. in, his, in his dealings. How did, they, how did Marshall manage that relationship with the president? Well, as I said, he... Uh, he he, uh, he, he wanted to be all business, did not want to get seduced by uh, Roosevelt. So he used Hopkins, as I mentioned, as a window into uh, uh, Roosevelt's thinking. Uh, he, uh, and so at first, you know, he thought he, thought he was on shaky ground. Uh, and eventually, of course, through his performance, uh, Marshall or uh, Roosevelt had more and more uh, confidence uh, in him. 
you know, Marshall never went to Hyde Park until the funeral, until hmm. Roosevelt's funeral, which he was asked to plan. Hmm. Uh, he never, you know, in, uh, got got into Roosevelt's children's hour where they would have drinks after after work. Uh, so it was a, a strictly professional relationship. And when he was asked whether he wanted to be uh, appointed chief of staff in 1939 by Roosevelt, he said, uh, I, I just want you to know, Mr. President, we're going to have conversations and sometimes it's going to be unpleasant. I want you to understand that. And that was the basis upon which, uh, you know, did he manage Roosevelt? No, I don't, he didn't manage Roosevelt. Uh, he came close to insubordination over the issue of uh, invading North Africa versus uh, the buildup in, uh, in England to invade France in 1943. He came very close to, uh, he was reluctant uh, to uh, support the invasion of, of North Africa. I think that in terms of their relationship, Marshall, you know, had, had a, you know, he had a certain amount of contempt for politicians. And of course, Roosevelt was the master politician. But there came a moment, January or February, February 42, when, when uh, as far as Marshall was current, concerned, he, he was convinced that that Roosevelt was a great man. And, it be, it, and, the, and the, the moment was when they were in the White House together and they received a letter, two letters, really they were cables, from General McCar uh, from uh, Kizan, the president of the Philippines uh, at the time, and MacArthur. At the, at the time, January, February 1942, Kizan, president of the Philippines, and, and, uh, and, and MacArthur, were on the island of Corregidor. The troops, uh, the American, the Filipino troops were on the Bataan Peninsula. Uh, Manila had already been overrun by the Japanese. The Japanese basically surrounded uh, MacArthur and, and uh, Kizan's troops. So Kizan sent a uh, cable to Roosevelt and said, uh, basically, we're doomed. Uh, here's what you need to do. Declare independence. Declare, you know, at the time, the Philippines were uh, dependent of the United States. Declare the nation of the uh, Philippines to be an in independent nation. Uh, we will declare neutrality, because the Japanese are occupying. We, we will declare neutrality. We will withdraw the Philippine troops. Uh, and the Americans should withdraw their troops. And the Japanese will uh, respect our neutrality. Uh, and they will uh, back off. And MacArthur also sent a cover letter that s didn't expressly uh, approve what Kizan was proposing, but he didn't disapprove it. Uh, he suggested that, you know, let's give it a try. And Roosevelt and Marshall were sitting there, and Roosevelt looked, uh, read that stuff, and he looked up at uh, Marshall and said, we can't do this. We're not doing this. Uh, the Filipinos want to get their troops out of there. That's fine, but we're we're going to be there to the last man. This is our territory. Uh, we're responsible for the Philippines. Kizan's proposal is not going to work. The Japanese are going to stay there. And they're never going to leave. Uh, and at that point, uh, you know, and and basically he was dooming uh, the American troops uh, to die or surrender. Yeah. Uh, which they, they ended up surrendering. So Marshall believed at that point uh, he was dealing with a very serious, uh, and he called him, for the first time, I, I believed he was a great man. And that's how he regarded him uh, for most of the time. He, of course, had, had serious disagreements. disagreements with him. Yeah, but. yeah. Um, so, I mean, we can obviously ask yeah. a lot of questions because of, no, no, Marshall's yeah. career is, there's, there's a lot to, plum from this, and I, but I do want to give the audience a yeah. chance soon for their own Q&A, and so maybe I'll ask um, two final questions of you. Um, after the war, he, of course, becomes Secretary of State after the mission to China, and, and he has this, as you mentioned, this major role in helping formulate a lot of the what we now regard as the foundations of the American post-war order, the NATO, and 
the European Recovery Plan. Can you tell us a little bit about the role he played in formulating the right. European Recovery Plan, the Marshall Plan, yeah. the man with the, the Marshall with a plan? So as Secretary of State, in the uh, early spring of 1947, he goes to his first uh, meeting of the uh, foreign ministers, uh, Europe, uh, and uh, it's in, uh, it's in uh, Moscow. And they, he's there for six weeks and, and uh, finally says, I, gotta, I have to see Stalin. Uh, we're not making any progress over what, what, what we're going to do with Germany and the rest of Europe. It was a charnel house in 1947. There were, you know, people were starving. Everything was destroyed. So he came away with a meeting from, with Stalin saying, Stalin has no interest uh, in helping uh, to uh, restore, revive, supply uh, Germany or the other nations that had been uh, destroyed during the Second World War. He wants it to continue uh, to deteriorate so that the communists can uh, gradually take over these governments and uh, move uh, westward into Europe and, and eventually to the Ruhr Valley. So uh, he said he came back called uh, George Cannon, first thing he did, uh, said, we got to do something, and we got to do it right away. Uh, so he picked Cannon. Cannon was tied up for a while, but he, he, got, he, he, got, he got into the uh, Office of Policy Planning at the State Department. He, gave, he, gave, uh, he said, Cannon, I want a plan. Uh, got two weeks. Uh, we got to figure out how to restore Europe. Uh, and <laughs> You know, the famous, uh, I don't know whether it's true or not, but uh, Kennan asked, uh, you know, any other instructions? He said, no, just avoid trivia. So Kennan came back with not a plan, but an outline in three weeks. And by that time, Marshall was pulling together people. And the, the, the people that he drew upon were just, they were the wise men of that era. Um, you know, he had Atchison, he had Lovett, he had Boland. He got, of course, had Kennan, and he got this guy named Will Clayton. Will Clayton was a dollar a year guy in the State Department, but he was before he joined before he joined the State Department during the Army or during the war. He was the largest, uh, the most uh, successful cotton trader in the world. He was an expert in international trade. That's what he knew, and he brought Clayton in because the Marshall Plan, in part, was a trade deal, yeah. uh, and Clayton was instrumental in, in in effectuating it. But Marshall was the one who brought the brought them together, and Marshall was the one who decided how and when to introduce what became the Marshall Plan to the world, and he decided uh, without talking to the Truman, in, in fact, without even telling his own people. Uh, but he did ask people to kind of draft, begin drafting a speech. And, but Marshall ended up putting the three parts of the speech together and, and, and actually you know, finalizing the speech. But the Marshall Plan speech took place on June 5th, 1947 at Harvard Yard. Um, and it was Marshall who decided when it would be done and what, and what would be said. And, and he, he deliberately downplayed it for the U.S. audience, but the British were alerted, uh, and the French, uh, to what he was saying and, and, the, and its importance. So Marshall was instrumental in conceiving, bringing the people together, and conceiving the, the plan, and driving it through Congress. And the other really indispensable person involved in this whole enterprise was Senator uh, uh, Vandenberg from Michigan. Arthur Vandenberg, who was, who was at the, the Republicans uh, were in charge of the uh, Congress at this point. Yeah. So Vandenberg was a former isolationist, but now an interventionist or internationalist. And he was in charge of the Foreign Relations Committee. So the idea you had to covet, you had to court, and uh, you had to court Vandenberg. He was a, a somewhat pompous guy. He always had to put his brand in anything that. Uh, the Democrats would propose, but Marshall was masterful at, at, be, at befriending them, and they worked together hand in hand. Uh, so Marshall was 
instrumental in getting the thing through Congress with Vandenberg. As far as the implementation of it, it was a vast bureaucracy, uh, and people like Clayton and, uh, <clears throat> and Lovett uh, and Boland, you know, ran it. They had people in France. They had Harriman. Harriman also was instrumental in, in uh, effectuating the Marshall Plan. So it was a, Marshall was always, he, he is correctly uh, regarded as the, you know, as the author of the Marshall Plan, but he by no means, it was not a one-man job yeah. by any means. Yeah. yeah. Um, before I turn it over yeah. to the audience, I'll give you the, the yeah. easy one last. How do you assess his place in American history? Uh, he obviously doesn't, you know, I think in other people have talked about he's not the ba battlefield general like a Grant or a Patton, but he, he really does occupy this sort of critical role as chief of staff and then this, this even bigger role, as some might say, after the war when he helps yeah. plays this foundation. So what, how do you assess his role? Where do, NATO, where do you put him? NATO, yeah, exactly. Well, I think Harvard's president at the time, Marshall, gave the, the, uh, the, the Marshall Plan speech in 1947 was James Conant. Yeah. And uh, actually, earlier that day, the reason Marshall came to Harvard was they were going to give him a, uh, an honorary degree in the morning, during the morning commencement exercises. And uh, the degree, I don't have the exact language, but basically, Conant, uh, Conant's, uh, Conant's award was uh, to a, the, the uh, to a soldier and statesman, to a soldier and statesman who brooks only one comparison, meaning George Washington. And if you talk about a soldier and a statesman uh, together, um, <clears throat> in terms of what they accomplished, uh, I think the comparison is apt, certainly is not. He doesn't eclipse uh, George Washington, but he certainly is at George Washington's elbow. Mm. And uh, I, would, I would regard that as, as an apt uh, a summary of, of how important uh, George Marshall was to the American story. It's yeah. a good place to end on. Yeah. But um, I know we have mics, and so if there are questions from the audience, I'd love to give everyone a chance to, yeah. those of you who are here, I can continue to ask questions all day, but it's also yeah. more fun if you have some questions. Yeah, this gentleman right over here on the left-hand side, there are microphones, so. Hi, Kevin Murphy. Um, there's a lot of controversy as to whether a 1943 um, invasion would have been successful, right. uh, including the the dominance and air power in 1944 that was not present in 1943. In your research, do you have opinions or did you find um, a way to uh, judge whether or not uh, had Marshall's preferred strategy taken place right. and uh, North Africa not been invaded and certainly Italy not been invaded, would it have been actually feasibly feasible to have conducted a successful 1943 campaign, and would that have perhaps ended the war earlier? Yeah, so I'm not going to do a what if, but you know, some of the factors. First of all, yeah, you had to have, you had to have patience, and Roosevelt didn't think the American people would have patience to wait. To do the buildup, to do the massive buildup in England, England was like a floating aircraft carrier right off the coast of France. So if you had the massive buildup throughout all of 1942 and the first half of 43, <clears throat> now the America or the, uh, the the Atlantic Wall wasn't really uh, constructed until early 44, but maybe they would have done it earlier. I don't know. Uh, but if 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 the United States had, or Britain and America had just, and Canada, and had just massed all of the aircraft, you know, Air Force <coughs> and troops, and buildup of troops, which they never did. Uh, you know, they never did until 44. Uh, and at that time, by, by, by 1943, the, uh, the aircraft, uh, the Air Force had drop tanks. They didn't have uh, drop tanks until the winter of 42. So, uh, 
and air cover was critical. But the U.S. and Brit British would have been able to uh, have the largest air force in the world sitting in England by, 19, by the summer of 43. Would have, and of course, then the Germans were completely occupied in the Soviet Union uh, with you know, hundreds of divisions. So, you know, I, I'm not going to do a what if. You know, it could have failed. The, you know, the, uh, and the 44 invasion could have failed. Yeah. It, was, it was a close one. Yeah. Uh, so, but by then, the, the, you know, they were ready. The Germans were ready by 44. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's just a, a matter of speculation. The 42, the possibility of a, a limited invasion, uh, really would be a, uh, what I argued was that uh, what, what Marshall and Eisenhower wanted to do in 42 would have been the fall of 42, uh, to have a beachhead that they could hold in the Cotentin Peninsula flood the base of the Cadenton Peninsula as the Germans did in 44, and just defend that territory until the buildup takes place and then you bring, it, you bring them in at 40, 40, uh, 43. Would that have failed? Yeah, I could well have failed. Uh, but it was an alternative. The whole idea, Marshall, Marshall wanted to basically take the pressure off the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union dropped out of the war or they sought a separate peace we would really be in trouble. <clears throat> you know, as it turned out, they didn't. And, you know, uh, the uh, invasion of North Africa uh, took place. But what ifs are all over the place. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and whether Marshall was right. You know, uh, Roosevelt, Roosevelt wanted that invasion of North Africa to happen because of the midterm elections. They were in November 1942. Uh, and he actually, you know, folded his hands in mock prayer when talking to Marshall and said, please, please make sure it happens before November, whatever it was, 1942. Uh, so politics was, was in the mind of Roosevelt uh, when he made the decision on North Africa. I, I can't give you a, a definitive prediction on whether it would have worked. I think everything was risky at that point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Why don't we go to this lady right here in the front? Yeah. Uh, right over here. Oh, okay. Yeah. This right here. Thank you. Hi, uh, Ellen Leipson. You mentioned in passing um, that uh, Marshall had a role in the firing of MacArthur. Yeah. Given his China experience, I wonder how you thought of, did Marshall think that Asia was as important as MacArthur did? Uh, he had no. you know, all of this experience in Europe, but no. Europe versus Asia, how do you think that uh, fit in his conceptual thinking about where the United States had to focus its energies, Marshall even after was, the war? From the beginning to the end, Marshall was Europe first. Uh, notwithstanding his experience in China, uh, the reason I believe that he was so deferential toward MacArthur, um, you know, MacArthur was a hero, a, real, a brave hero in coming out of World War II. I think he had six or seven silver stars. He was up for a Congressional Medal of Honor, but he didn't get it. His father had gotten it. He desperately wanted a Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, and he was also chief of staff in the, in the early 30s, way above Marshall. Uh, Marshall revered him for his performance in World War I. And of course, uh, it, Marshall made him into a, 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 an American hero in World War II by making sure he got the Congressional Medal of Honor when he left the Philippines uh, on, under orders from uh, from Roosevelt, actually, which Marshall supported. Uh, he was a brilliant commander of troops. Inchon, in China, or in uh, North, in Korea, Korea, was amazing. Everybody opposed it, and he was enormously successful. So the, the evidence, though, for firing MacArthur uh, that accumulated over a period of months in uh, late 1950 
in early 51 when he wanted to invade China. He, he wanted Truman to drop the bomb. Uh, he, uh, he sent letters to the uh, Republican leadership uh, undermining uh, Truman's, uh, Truman, Truman wanted, was, was ready to settle once the Chinese were, were, were across the Yalu. Uh, but Marshall wanted to basically start a war, or uh, MacArthur, MacArthur basically wanted to start a war with the Chinese. So, but what I, but he was, de but, but at this point, Marshall was, a, was the civilian Secretary of Defense. So he was not, you know, not involved with the jo Joint Chief of Staff. He oversaw the Joint Chief of Staff. So he convened the Joint Chief of Staff, and he let them, you know, uh, one at a time, conclude that it was time for MacArthur to go. Truman had already made up his mind. All Truman wanted was he wanted unanimity among all of the top people so that no one could uh, later say that they disagreed. So uh, Marshall, though, was the last person after the Joint Chiefs decided he had to go, Marshall then said, he thought, oh, can't we bring him back? Uh, maybe we can convince him. And Atchison convinced Marshall that MacArthur was not going to change. So, so Marshall then said, OK, let's go. At that point, Truman said, we're going. We're going to fire him. Uh, so uh, it was just, and I, I think Marshall was an institutionalist. He believed that, that MacArthur was important to the reputation of the U.S. Army, and he was. Um, and so that's why he was, he was reluctant. But in the end, when he testified in Congress during the hearings over the firing of MacArthur, uh, Marshall eviscerated uh, MacArthur's uh, position. Uh, basically, he said, you know, <clears throat> He's a theater commander, and he doesn't understand the overall significance. Uh, and because, and one reason to your point, Marshall wanted to be able to defend Europe. He was more worried about the Soviet Union in Europe than he was about the Chinese uh, in Asia. I think, ma'am, you had a question right here, this woman right here, and then this gentleman. For the intelligence services um, right before the war and during the war, how close was Marshall in, in, in helping to develop and um, how instrumental was he in, in um, funding and- Ma'am, could you speak up a little oh, bit? How, how instrumental yeah. was uh, Marshall in funding, informing the intelligence services in the Pacific and in Europe, the European theater uh, oh. during the war? How, what uh, role did Marshall play in setting up the intelligence services during the war and after the war, I think is... You know, uh, I don't know much about that. In other words, in my research, I didn't focus on his relationship I, with it. I know he didn't have much to do with the OSS, uh, but in terms of his own, the Army intelligence services, uh, I don't know how, how, how closely uh, he worked with them. I, I do remember that one of his famous comments was that the intelligence services failed, his intelligence service failed him in Normandy. He said they never, they never really focused on, uh, on the uh, difficulties of fighting in the Bocage. Yeah. He said that was an enormous intelligence failure. Um, they didn't. They weren't ready for the uh, for the difficulties of fighting in the Bocage, the you know the hedgerows. The hedgerows, right? So, the answer to your question is I don't know much about uh, how he dealt with the intelligence services on uh, east, east or west. I think this young man. Had, and then there's one more, and we'll do this one, and then let's take okay. this one together, and we'll do these last two questions. Thank you, sir. My name is Chen. My question is, what was uh, Marshall's immediate reaction to the result of China's civil war after uh, nationalists lose mainland China. Uh, what, did he take any action to facilitate the defense of Taiwan? What was his input? Well, uh, no, see, see, he was done with being Secretary of State. Actually, he was 
he had an operation where he, he was diagnosed with uh, uh, kidney failure in the, in the uh, summer of 48. So he was limited from that point on. And then he ended up, he, he left the State Department in uh, November of 1948. So the Chinese were uh, hit, you know, by that time he'd been out of China for a couple of years. And of course the, the Chinese communists uh, solidified their battlefield successes. And uh, uh, I guess the PRC was recognized in October 1949. So by that time, Marshall was well out of it. Um, so he never, he never advocated uh, defense of, the, of, at that time, Formosa, uh, Taiwan. Uh, he, uh, he was totally frustrated with his experience in China. Uh, and his hands were tied behind his back. And he was in China only in 46. And at that time, uh, you know, he, he, he negotiated a truce, a truce of, of the warring parties. He almost got a coalition together in early 46, in March of 46. But he left, he came back to the United States to raise money uh, for the effort. He had to, he had to get, raise money in Congress to uh, provide support to the coalition government. And he was gone for six weeks. Uh, and when he came back, and Madame, Ka Madame Chiang Kai-shek told him to get back here. Uh, that the place, it was falling apart, and it did fall apart. So the rest, from March until the end of 46, there was one truce, and then they, the one, there would be battlefield success by one party, and then they'd say, okay, let's have a truce, and the other guy would, so they, and the generals were uh, <clears throat> basically breaking the truce all the time. Chiang uh, Kai-shek had lobbyists back in Washington. I think they, at one point they had 11 different lobbying firms, lobbying for the China, what they call the China lobby, and they had her in loose in Time magazine. So Chiang Kai-shek knew that if he did not cooperate with Marshall, the U.S. would still support him. He would still be the legitimate government. So Marshall was never treated as an independent or neutral arbitrator. He was always the, the arm of, uh, Truman's arm uh, for Chiang Kai-shek. He was never, he said, you know, uh, <clears throat> They lost trust in me. Uh, they lost trust in me. He had trust at the beginning, but uh, they lost trust in him. Uh, it, was a, it was a failure for him. Uh, and of course, the Republicans took advantage of that uh, in, the, in, 19, in the McCarthy uh, movement, took advantage, and they, they believed that, and they created the story that Marshall lost China. But, uh, China was not Marshall's to lose, nor was it ours to lose. I think uh, people say that uh, in the end, the uh, <coughs> Mao Zedong's uh, Chinese generals were superior to China, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, generals. They were better on the battlefield. Yeah. And then last question to the gentleman in the back. Dr. Dan Burkhart, National Intelligence University. I know the documentation is limited, but can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Fox Connor and Marshall? Well, yeah, Fox Connor. Fox, uh, Marshall did not, uh, well, during World War I, they were together uh, in, in the headquarters. And so there were, there were the famous incident in the war uh, World War One that I talk about in my book, uh, where Fox Connor is uh, basically running the war for Pershing at that point, uh, and it had to do with the final battles uh, of of the war. Uh, so Marshall was very close to him. He, uh, uh, you ready to go? Yeah. Oh no no no! I was just leaning forward. Okay. Go ahead, <laughs> Marshall. No, Marshall was was very close to Fox Connor. Learned a lot of him. But uh, Fox Connor himself was really impressed with Marshall, and he told Eisenhower uh, that, uh, that it, when Eisenhower was working for Fox Connor, he told Eisenhower that, that he needed uh, to work with Marshall, that Marshall was the most, uh, the smartest and most accomplished uh, strategic strategist, uh, uh, and this was on the eve of World War II. Uh, but he told uh, Eisenhower he needed to work with Marshall. 
Uh, so did they have a close relationship? I don't, I don't think so. I don't get the sense they did. They worked together in World War I closely. Uh, and uh, you read the part of the book where, uh, where Connor is telling uh, Marshall uh, to, do, to, to, to uh, do something. And Marshall is basically uh, uh, trying to, to uh, not follow Fox Connor's uh, uh, demand. He, did, he didn't think he spoke for Pershing. Uh, so that, that's about as much as I know about their relationship. David, thank you. This yeah. has been wonderful. Very welcome distraction from yeah. everything else that goes on in Washington. It's a wonderful book. I'd urge everyone to read it. I've, I've read it, and I think it's a, it's a great addition to our understanding of George Marshall and the role he's played in American history. So thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah. Join me in thanking David. Thank you.